At Numbers 25, beginning in verse 1, this is God's word. And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people unto their sac- the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said unto Moses, Take all the heads of the people and hang them up before the Lord against the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. And Moses said unto the judges of Israel, Slay ye every one, every one his men that were joined unto Baal Peor. Behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought unto his brethren a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel, who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose up from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand and went in after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. And those that died in the plague were twenty and four thousand. And the Moses spake unto, and uh, the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Phineas the son of Eleazar the son of Aaron. The priest hath turned my wrath away from the children of Israel, while he was zealous for my sake among them, that I consumed not the children of Israel in my jealousy. Wherefore I wherefore say, Behold, I give him unto him my covenant of peace, and she, he shall have it, and his seed after him, even the covenant of an everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God, and made an atonement for the children of Israel. One of the things that has annoyed me as I have grown grown older is that most of the entertainment that you see these days seems to follow what are known as tropes. The same kind of thing or statement or event happening over and over again. And one of the things that uh, it really annoys me is uh, characters that seem to have little to no sense. Uh, one example of this is uh, someone asks a stupid question when approached uh, by another character who has malice in his eyes, who is approaching with a gun, a knife, a hatchet, an axe, a water pistol, and they ask the really stupid question, what are you doing with that thing? Well, duh, he is uh, about to use that weapon upon you. And it's like they can't hear the ominous music that you can hear uh, during uh, that encounter. Uh, they don't realize that as they have stabbed this person in the back, they are about to have that literally uh, done back to them. And in uh, this passage today, it causes me to wonder if anyone saw Phineas uh, wandering or picking up the javelin and asked himself, well, what is he doing, going to do with that? After all, Phineas is of the priestly line. He is the grandson of Aaron. He is uh, one of the uh, to be the uh, uh, high priest in the high priestly line. And a priest carrying a spear, well, you would think it would be a rather uncommon sight. And yet Phineas here represents a mighty warrior of God. And in this passage, there are three Masters. After all, the word Baal in Hebrew means owner or master or lord. 
And I want to, to, us to look at these three this evening. Uh, first, we see the master of Peor, or Baal Peor, the idol, idol of Moab. Secondly, we see the master of the spear, that being Phineas himself. And finally, we look at the master of zeal, God's jealousy uh, working through uh, Phineas. The first uh, master, or Baal, we find is Baal Peor. Uh, Baal Peor is an interesting event because it is the work of Balaam. Uh, we learn this in, later in Numbers 31.16. Behold, these caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. Uh, this event was orchestrated by Balaam, and that name might be familiar. He's the one that Balak, the king of Moab, tried to entice to come and curse Israel. He couldn't do it. Balaam's donkey, you remember that story. But apparently, after all of that happened, uh, Balak is still insistent uh, that something be done about Israel. And so Balaam suggests, hey, the only way that you're going to uh, mess up Israel is by messing up their relationship uh, with their God. Now, never says that, but clearly Balaam is the one who comes up with this idea, and you can see uh, that logic behind it. He pro and so Balaam plots Israel's problem that result in God's solution. At uh, the tempting orchestrated by Balaam, Israel begins engaging with immorality with the people of Moab, an event that God has already uh, suggested and given commands to Moses that when they get into the land, they're not in the land yet, when they get into the land, they want to prevent this. Verse 1 through 3, And Israel abode at Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. You remember back in Exodus chapter 34 that this is exactly the kind of situation that the Lord tells Israel to avoid when they get into the land. Do not... Uh, be around them. Do not covenant with them, lest uh, they invite you to come over and eat, and you eat in the presence of their gods. Uh, the lure of this event is seen. There you see the progression. Uh, that is summarized in verse 1, but it is revealed in verses 2 and 3. It begins with uh, seemingly with just come over and eat, and then eat before our gods, and then engage in all the, of the rest of uh, the worship of pure. Scholars debate what the worship of Baal Peor looked like. The entomology of the name translates to the master or the lord of the opening. Uh, Peor, uh, as a name, is mentioned in Numbers 23-28 as the name of the mountain. And that uh, generates a question. Is uh, the mountain named for the god or is the god named for the mountain. But at any rate, the worship of this idol uh, obviously included fornication, adultery, and immorality. That is uh, exemplified in this passage. It is likely that uh, there were priestesses that were involved to facilitate the worship of Baal Peor. And in this, Israel becomes fully engaged in the worship of this Baal. Verse 3 uh, takes us to that summation. Look at it again. And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. This joining themselves is matrimonial language. 
This causes the anger of the Lord to burn against them. The Lord, who has described himself as being slow to anger, now his wrath is kindled against Israel because they have violated the very essence of the covenant. The very essence of the covenant, I will be your God and you will be my people. That matrimonial link between God and his people has been broken by their fornication, by their adultery with Baal Peor. And so God reacts to the evil in the people and commands Moses to execute capital punishment on those who have engaged in this gross immorality. Look at verse 4. And the Lord said unto Moses, Take all the heads of the people and hang them up before the Lord against the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. God does not even spare the leaders of the people. And verse 4 indicates that God intends for the entire leadership of Israel to be executed for allowing Israel to fall into this reprehensible state. And yet, Moses seems to intervene. Look at verse 5. And Moses said unto the judges of Israel, Slay ye every one of his men that were joined to Baal Peor. Moses rectifies this situation seemingly by going to all the leaders of Israel and say, Okay, you fell down on your job. You should have nipped this in the blood. You have turned a blind eye to what's going on. Now, correct it. And yet, this seems to be rather a, a harsh statement. How is all of these people to be executed? How are we to understand uh, the Lord's requirement? Well, we must not conceive of God as a vengeful deity. Usually, when God makes this kind of edict, when God makes this kind of judgment, it is against those who are not his people. God, God at this point, is treating those united to Baal Peor the way he treats the people of Canaan themselves. There is now, within the camp of Israel, two different nations. Those who have committed themselves to Baal Peor and those who have remained faithful, there is a sense of there being a civil war. We ought to remember two issues in this passage, that firstly, the Lord commands his people to be holy. This is the element, this is, if you will, the lowest common denominator of God's people's purity is their fidelity to God himself. Those who pollute themselves must be dealt with according to this mandate of holiness. For secondly, God's name is at stake. Israel as the people of God bear his name. They are known as that is their identity as the people who worship the Lord. And they cannot engage in a behavior that defaces his name without retributive justice. And God must preserve the dignity of his name before the watching world. We in the church cannot afford the luxury of permitting God's name to be defaced or, by, or allow it, the sullying of the purity of the church. These are two realities that God will not permit within his people. The Lord of the church is the same as the Lord of Israel. And considering how much more blessing and grace we have received, how much more circumspectly ought to walk. 
This is what we are commanded in the third commandment when it says you shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. You shall not bear, you shall not carry, you shall not be attached to you his name and you shall not walk in a vain way, in an empty way according to his name. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. If you take the name of Christian, there has to be some way in which we walk according to that name and the reputation of our King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We rightly emphasize when we talk about church discipline, the, uh, the purpose of that discipline as the restoration of sinners. And I always put that first because uh, putting it elsewhere in the three reasons for doing church discipline oftentimes uh, gets things uh, messed up in how we do church discipline. However, one of the other reasons that we do church discipline is for the purity of the church and the glory of God's name and his reputation. That does not mean, and we put them in that order, that does not mean that these things are any more unimportant than the restoration of the sinner. For the purity of the assembly of God's people matters. Nature tells us that impurity is a lot easier to affect than purity. You or I can quickly make water dirty, but it takes a lot of work to make dirty water clean. And that work is hard, even in the church, but it is necessary. We see the necessity of purity and the way Israel fell before Baal pure, but secondly, I want us to see the master of the spear. The master of the spear in this context will become painfully obvious as we move through this section. We see here Zimri's problem and Phineas's solution. In this passage, we don't hear the name Zimri, but it appears in the subsequent verses. He was not an average Israelite that wandered through the camp. He was an important person. Look at verse 14. Now the name of that Israelite that was slain, even that was slain, was the... Uh, now the name of the Israelite was slain, even that was slain with the Midianitish woman, was Zimri, the son of Salu, a prince of the chief house among the Simeonites. This wasn't just Joe Schmo uh, Israelite. This was an important person. He was a prince. He was a man of importance. So when he was engaged in, uh, you can see why uh, this one is singled out, because it refers to God's claim on Moses, telling him to execute all of the chief men, because even the chief men of Israel, even the princes, were engaged in this sin. And his companion was not a mere Midianitish woman either. Look at verse 15. And the name of the Midianitish woman that was slain was Cosby, the daughter of Zur. He was head over, the of, over a people and a chief house in Midian. Her father was a chief over a people rule in a ruling house of Midian. Now, you might know from your geography that Midian and Moab aren't necessarily neighbors. So how did a Midianite woman uh, get to the area of Moab? It seems probable that the worship of Baal Peor might have been a kind of popular practice for obvious reasons. And therefore, it was broadcast throughout the region, and Cosby became a priestess and might have migrated to the center of the worship of Baal Peor. Probably that was either, again, the mountain was named for the god, or the god was named for the mountain, but the association with the two probably meant that that was the center of worship. 
And so uh, maybe she moved there. And it's interesting to note that the Hebrew text simply says the Midianite. And it may be that, the, that Cosby was uh, more than just a regular priestess, but having come from a ruling family, maybe she might have been a chief priestess for Beryl Peor. Here comes Zimri and Cosby in the eyes of all the people, and they walk through the camp. Look at verse 6. And behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought unto his brethren a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses, in the sight of all the congregation of Israel, who are weeping before the door of the congregation. Now, the common interpretation is that the people are weeping at the tabernacle, presumably because of the plague. You see that plague in the end of verse 8 and in verse 9, and those that died in the plague were 20 and 4,000. And so uh, some see that they're all, that Moses and the congregation are weeping at the door of the tabernacle, recognizing that the sin is going on in the camp and there's a plague in the camp as well. But one alternative suggested by Ronald Allen is that they are actually laughing in front of the tabernacle. The text says, who are weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation there in verse 6. Uh, but uh, though the word who is actually the word they, which could refer either to the people or to the couple themselves. Second, even though the term there is weeping, it could refer, refer to the reverse, especially if the writers thought that it would be so uh, blasphemous, so uh, problematic, but so injurious to the uh, greatness of their God to indicate that anyone would be laughing immorally before the tabernacle. You see this in the Old Testament, in the book of Job, where Job's wife, we read in, in our Bible, says, curse God and die. Well, the Hebrew actually says, bless God and die, but that doesn't make any sense. So it's uh, obviously uh, the reverse. But either way, you to understand this, the abomination is clear that this couple is brazenly flaunting their immoral behavior and idolatry before the face of God, before the very temple of the congregation, before the place where God, God's presence was seen. There's something almost... Uh, disturbing when we recognize, as we understand, that on the tabernacle at this time, the cloud and of fire and pil uh, the pillar of cloud and fire is above the tabernacle as Zimri and Cosby walk by. The sunned people stare on the effrontery of these two, but one of them moves and grabs a spear. Verse 7, And Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose up and from among the, the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. One of the people moves and grabs a spear. How Phineas obtained the spear is unknown, but it could be that since the tabernacle was in the center of the, of the camp and all of the standards of all of the tribes were supposed to be put there, that one of those standards might have included a, a, a javelin. He takes the spear, and he follows the couple into the tent. Verse 8, And he went after the man of Israel into the tent, and thrust both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. So the plague was stayed from Israel. He takes the tent, and he, he, he takes the spear, and he pins them. It reminds me of the that you might consider it to be a cruel activity where you would pin insects to a cork board 
Here he pins these two people in the slaughter. The plague stops. Seems to be a good end in some cases. And some might try to apply this rather literally to our own present day. And so we must ask the question, does the Bible teach that we should go around with spears in such a threatening manner like Phidias? Well, absolutely not. Rather, if we are to properly apply this, by this word to our own lives, it requires us to ask an even more troubling question. How do we deal with sin in the presence of the tabernacle? How do we deal with sin that occurs before the face of the presence of the Lord? And that question does not ask us how we behave in this building or in the fellowship of the people of God. It challenges us to, to ask the question of how we deal with sin in our hearts. For is not our heart, dear Christian, the temple of the holy God? Does not Paul speak in the very same kind of context when he asks this question, What know ye not, that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have from God, and ye are not your own? In the same context, when he's talking about immorality, Paul brings up this reality that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. And he asks the question, Shall you join the temple of God to the temple of harlots. Phineas' extreme behavior teaches us the need of ruthlessness against our own sin. Jesus will use the metaphors in his teaching about cutting off parts of our body. It causes us, it challenges us with the question, is the purity that God gives to his people so precious that no particle of impurity in your life will be tolerated? Is that your attitude towards sin? The activity of Baal Peor led to the master of the spear, but now we will find out who the master of zeal really is. God comes back into the picture and blesses Phineas for his deed. The interesting thing about this section is not necessarily the blessing on Phineas, but the reason for that blessing being Phineas's zeal. God promises to Phineas uh, a covenant of grace. Look at verse 12 and 13. Wherefore, say, behold, uh, look at uh, verse 10 and 11. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, hath turned away my wrath away from the children of Israel while he was zealous for my sake among them that I consumed not the children of Israel in my jealousy. Wherefore, say, behold, I give unto him my covenant of peace, and he shall have it, and his seed after him, for even the covenant of an everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God and made an atonement for the children of Israel. This promise that Phineas's seed would have an eternal priesthood is important. You can find its fulfillment in Ezra chapter 7. After the exile, after Israel has gone into exile in Babylon, they come back. And Ezra writes of uh, the restoration. And guess who Ezra's forefather is? Ezra is a Levite who traces his heritage back 
to Phineas. You find that in Ezra 7, verse 5. The interesting thing to note is, this, that, is that this act of Phineas is not only a mark of his zeal, but the Bible says that he made atonement for Israel. You see that at the end of verse 13. Again, this statement gains, uh, God speaks of this act as an act of sacrifice. Again, this statement gains more significance if it happened in the presence of the tabernacle. The slaying of sin in the camp is an intoning sacrifice. And Phineas has accomplished a high priestly role by slaying sin in the camp. But Phineas is only example. Phineas points us to our high priest who made complete and eternal atonement for us. For Jesus, that great high priest did not sacrifice another. He took the spear himself. He became sin and pinned himself to the ground in order to slay the sin in us. If you have not received and rested upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to you in the gospel, the spear hangs over you like the sword of Damocles, which will pierce you to the depths of hell forever. My friend, receive Christ today. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is God made man, that he came and lived without sin, that he died, the spear, pier, spear piercing him rather than his people. And in his resurrection, he proclaimed the halting of the plague of death. Do you believe that what Jesus did, he did for you? I urge you to turn from the sin which torments your soul and follow Jesus. The word that blatantly appears in this blessing is the word jealous. It appears three times in verse 11. It is the Hebrew word kina, important in its context from Exodus chapter 25, uh, 20 verse 5. In the Ten Commandments, in the Second Commandment, I the Lord thy God am a jealous God. The Lord doubles down on this idea in Exodus chapter 34, which we looked at, uh, 34:14. For thou shalt worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. This is a matrimonial word. In Numbers 5:14, it speaks of the jealousy that a man has for his wife. The marital jealousy used throughout the prophets to describe the love of God for his people and his wrath at their idolatry when they follow after idols. Idolatry for God's people constitutes the ultimate sin of impurity. Let's allow the second commandment to dominate our interpretation of this event. This couple imported the worship of Baal Peor into the worship of the Lord. If you look at the history of Israel, this is literally the place where the Lord basically says, enough is enough, there will be no more mercy, you are going to exile. Israel uh, dallies with idolatry all the time. But when you look at Ezekiel and you look at Jeremiah, what basically almost causes enough is enough is when that idolatry is bought, brought right into the precincts of the temple. 
Ezekiel sees a hole in the wall and people worshiping Tammuz. Ezekiel sees the altar in the temple and people worshiping the rising of the sun. The Shorter Catechism is what says, What is forbidden in the second commandment? The second commandment forbiddeth the worshiping of God by images or by any other way not appointed in his word. The purity of God's people requires the right worship of God. It is interesting that it is not the first commandment that in which jealousy uh, occurs, but the second. It is not having other gods that arouses God's jealousy. It is their worship and their worship styles imputed into, brought into the worship of God. It's a fine distinction that has little practical difference for what you, how you worship defines what you worship. That is why it is critical that God is worshipped only as he has revealed himself to be worshipped. For we cannot know God by any other way but by revelation, and therefore we cannot worship him in any other way than by the way he has revealed. To worship him in any other way is to think of God as other than he is himself and declares himself to be, and this God will not tolerate. That's why we, it is critical to come to worship prepared, else we say by our actions that God is not worthy of our taking the time to prepare for worship. Our worship here is not exciting. It's not all that user-friendly. It's not uh, seeker-sensitive. It is not, as some might have, some have called it, inspotainment. It is God-focused and diligently prepared to reflect exactly how God has revealed himself to be in Scripture. Phineas is the only one described by God in this situation as having his jealousy. Phineas will later lead the army to war against Midian for their part in this incident. In Numbers 31, he leads the battle, and you can imagine why. It's a very unpriestly thing to do. In Judges 22, he will be a part of the delegation that is sent to the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh when they build an altar. If you remember that incident, the uh, tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh uh, have land on the east side of the Jordan River. And when uh, they are dismissed, they go across the river and then they pile up some stones. And that throws everyone into a tizzy. And Phineas is the guy they send because they know this guy is zealous for the Lord. If these tribes have done what is right, Phineas will be able to judge. If they can satisfy Phineas, then things must be okay. Because they trust the one who has a zeal for the Lord. He stands as an example of what the zeal for the Lord looks like. He represents a passion for purity. The challenge we have to ask is, do we share his zeal for the Lord's name? Do we share his zeal for the Lord's purity? Do we share his zeal for the Lord's people? Let's pray together. Lord, we draw near to worship you according to your command, according to your invitation, according to your order. 
Forgive us when we dally with sin. Give us zeal for the purity that you have worked in us and for your great name. Make us holy, keep us holy. We pray for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.